My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 48, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Exodus 32, Leviticus 23, and Psalm 80. The Golden Calf, Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and go up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablet were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp, Moses replied. It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf in dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, 
whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them go out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Then the Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Leviticus 23. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. The Sabbath. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. The Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do do not do regular work. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring to the priests a sheath of the first grain of your harvest. He is to wave the sheath before the Lord, so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day of the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheath, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb, a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of twenty tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil, a food offering presented to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hen of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheath of wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, baked with yeast, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a food offering and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, 
each a year old for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering, together with the bread of the first fruits. They are sacred offerings to the Lord for the priest. On the same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present a food offering to the Lord. The Day of Atonement The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves. A present, a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day, because it is the Day of Atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord your God, those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening you are to observe your Sabbath. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing food offerings to the Lord. The burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings required for each day. These offerings are in addition to those of the Lord's Sabbath and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the freewill offerings you give to the Lord. So begin with the 15th day of the seventh month. After you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in a temporary shelter for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed festivals of the Lord. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, Awaken your mighty, come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made their drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. 
the mighty cedars with its branches. It branches reached as far as the sea, it shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty, look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned from with fire. At your rebuke your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man who have raised up from yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Okay, this is the famous story of the golden calf. As Father Mike Schmidt says, it starts with uncertainty. So Dr. Brene Brown describes how We tend to see faith and reason as natural enemies when she describes certainty as the enemy of both. When we want certainty, we cannot reason well. We're more likely to seek to support whatever outcome we're hoping for. In the academic world, we often refer to this as a confirmation bias, where you search only for the answers that support the point of view or outcome you've already assumed is correct. Alternatively, certainty is also the enemy of faith. If faith moves from being certain of what you do not see to uncertain because you cannot see, then it's an enemy. Father Mike Schmitz notes how this story starts with uncertainty and the response to uncertainty. When is Moses coming back? Is he coming back? Where is God? Why can't I see him now kind of attitude? There were feelings of doubt and frustration. And how do we respond to doubt and frustration? often by seeking to take control. The people took matters into their own hands. Instead of participating in the story as they were told and waiting for the next chapter of the story to unfold, they questioned the story, their role in it, and began to write their own story of what's next. This story does not start with an I defy Yahweh God sort of attitude. It starts with a lack of trust, confusion because there's a lack of certainty about when and what's next. Father Mike Schmitz describes how the people of Israel ascribed Yahweh onto the golden calf, and he described it like the story of the Tower of Babel in a way, making something for God, making something we can control, that the orientation of our heart is shifting from representing to taking. Idols give people something they can take out when they want to and put away and walk away from when they want to, too. This is only possible if we reposition ourselves from created to creator. And we falsely assume we are now God and center to the story instead of Yahweh as center and we're a part of his story. So what does Aaron think he's doing when he creates this golden calf? Dr. Imes describes a few possibilities. Maybe he thinks he's making a visual representation of Yahweh. Another possibility, maybe he doesn't see it as making a God, but making a transport or transportation for God. There is some suggestion of that happening in other deities in the ancient Near Eastern time. Yet, the people say these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt, so they didn't see it as transportation, really. Or is Aaron introducing a new god, like Baal? Yes, there is this mixed idea of making sacrifices to Yahweh, but then there's this revelry, which in Hebrew connotates not just play or celebration, but something sexually dislocated. A dislocation is for sure happening and a moral breach of the first commands is taking place. Dr. Imes points out how God's response when he tells Moses on the mountain what the people are doing sounds something like a parent telling their spouse, look what your son did. 
Also notice, nothing escapes God's notice. He saw and heard what the people were doing, even though he was on the mountain with Moses. God is justly angry. He had just rescued and given endlessly. And one month later, they were morally defecting from his very first command. Also notice how God was offering to start over with Moses and Moses' response. Moses chose to intercede. Similar to how Abraham did when the angel of the Lord consulted him in relation to Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham interceded. I notice how God chooses leaders who would, in conflict, seek to sit in the gap to intercede. Moses is thinking of God's reputation, and even while justified in God's anger because we breach the covenant, Moses seeks God's immutable character of mercy and his promises. It's this foreshadowing of how God will keep both ends of the covenantal relationship, his and ours. Dr. Imes also points to Joshua, who is waiting for Moses and does not seem to have been with the people who were renouncing instead of representing their God. This is important to note because soon we will read how Joshua will be a successor of Moses. Also know when Moses sees what God had described, he is also moved to anger, right? Because now he's seeing it firsthand. Dr. Imes describes how she doesn't think Moses broke the tablets out of like a temper tantrum, um, but rather to emphasize that they had already broken them. They're part of the covenant, broken. Dr. Imes also zooms into the conversation where Moses asks Aaron, what did these people do that led them into such great sin? How did essentially your role as you know, high priest leader, how did you just lose yourself so quickly? <laughs> Remember how Aaron says the calf walked out of the fire instead of owning his actions of using a tool to create it? Aaron seems to be maximizing the people's culpability and minimizing his own agency. Sort of like Adam did in Genesis 3, where he blames Eve, and then he also blames God himself for bringing Eve, taking no responsibility for his moral defection. Dr. Imes points out how this is starkly different to Moses' leadership. Remember, when God gave, he dangled the opportunity before Moses to be the forefather of an entirely new people and just start again. He instead, I love this, he instead, Moses intercedes for God's mercy, shows concern for God's reputation shares God's anger, and he brings consequences in verse 32. Moses also, this is wild to me, he binds his life with the peoples. Two stark contrasts where one stands in the gap and one seems to minimize their agency and culpability. For me, this is just really insightful as I teach leadership to think, are, are we taking our roles of leadership and, and seeking to represent God well and stand in the gap and stand with, or are we seeking to minimize our own agency and blame shift onto someone or something else? So summing things up, we were not made to diminish or domesticate God to rule and subdue God. We are not to approach God on our terms. In doing this, we also diminish and dislocate our own selves. We abdicate our own identity and role. Idolatry is the inverse of our role, where rather than subduing creation, we submitted to it and are in fact subdued by it. So in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we were made to adore God and rule all created things in his name. Yet the Israelites, much like many of the stories we've read and we experience in our own lives, this refusal to make God first. Instead, we desire parts of creation and later things that we created. And that's also reflected in Romans 1, 23 to 25. We reverse the order. 
Instead of desiring our creator, who is our ruler, we made our first desire ourselves, what we know, what we feel, what our passions are. And these things as well, as the manifestation of these things we create, become our rulers. Isaiah 44, 7 also talks about how idols poison the heart into complete dependence, happiness, success. And in verse 9 and 18 of Isaiah 44, we seek strength or power from them, but they in fact drain us of strength, power, and joy. They're unsustainable, making our hearts and minds spiritually blind. In verse 20 of Isaiah 44, self-deluded through this web of lies that we're creating. So it's like this difference between happiness, which is this pursuit of a transient mood state, and joy is different. That's done through the spirit of gratefulness and, and sacrificial love, because these are important nuances, happiness versus joy, peace versus comfort. The question becomes, when does curiosity, interest, desire, and influence become control? When do we move from consumer to consumed? What safeguards can we put on our hearts and minds? What red flags can we notice in ourselves to keep the faith? I do not think this means we cannot enjoy things in creation, if you reference like Ecclesiastes 3.1 or 1 Timothy 6.17, but they cannot, by our intense or driving desire for them or our belief in their power, take over. If our hope is placed in on these things and we attach our identity to them, derive our purpose or self-worth for these things, that's for sure where the shift is taking place. Dr. Timothy Keller, author of Prodigal God, describes how Exodus does not envision any third option. We will either worship God, desire and base our identity, or we will worship something created, albeit real or imagined, celebrities, self-image, nature, money, status. Every human personality— behavioral tendency, every human community, culture, or society, every human thought form, psychology, philosophy, will be based on some ultimate concern or some ultimate allegiance driving motive to something. This something then by and large becomes our identity, which impacts our attitude and from which we perceive and derive our self-worth and all of reality. Thinking about this carefully is so important. Dr. Keller describes the two most likely idols as self-salvation or the moralizing approach where we seek to be right and better with our actions. This is dangerous because I do not think we often see it creeping up into our hearts and minds. It's this like self-righteousness. We can become slaves to fear and not joy or love. So it's just like our, our idol actually becomes rightness. And the second idol is self-senses, where we create and try to experience a sense of freedom by our own senses of what feels right, good, true, without God-tethered discernment. This is like freedom for freedom's sake instead of freedom for a freed purpose. Sin is not our master. Law is not our master. Mastery is the wrong dynamic. It's the wrong story, I think. God created us out of his power and love and wanted us to to use that portion of power and love to rule, subdue, bless in the dominion he provided in the role and relationship he created. Adam and Eve, humanity, morally defected, submitting ourselves to a false narrative where sin became pervasive, mastering humans time and again. Law was created out of love to atone, cover, and guide in grace to refresh. But as we'll read in this story, we will distort and reject the law, us humans, and then Jesus, the gospel, a way to transform the heart, covering it in grace, as described in Romans 6, 14, 
is the direction of the story because self-salvation and self-creation lead us away from the story in all capitals, far away from the story into our own stories. Dr. Imes points out how some people entirely disregard the law in favor of Jesus and how others disregard Jesus in pursuit of recreating the ancient Israelite law in a similar cultural context. But she really encourages us to see them together in one connected unified story where we understand more about who God is and our way of relating and bearing his name and both of them together, the law and Jesus are both imperative. Jesus does fulfill the law, particularly the aspects related to atonement and ritual purity, as well as the Israelite-only option. It extends to Gentiles and everyone. Yet laws related to bearing God's name and not having other gods and being a blessing to others by providing and loving faithfully with boundaries continues to be this important narrative aspect to God's story. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.